Matthew, chapter 13, verses 47 to 51. Again, the kingdom is like net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all this? They answered, yes. Have you understood all this? Jesus asked. And they answered, yes. By which I really hope they meant, no, not at all. This is not easy stuff to understand. And we do have to give it some time and thought if we're to get to grips with what Jesus was doing with these deceptively simple sayings that we call the parables of the kingdom. I mean, that's a tough one, isn't it? The parable of the net. Well, I'd like us to start our reflection on what is often known as the parable of the dragnet by asking a question, and the question is this. By what criteria do you think we can judge things as good or evil? By what criteria do you think we can judge things as good or evil? This isn't a straightforward question, of course because it touches so many areas of our life together, both as a church and, more widely, as a society. And the definitions of good and evil have shifted over time, and they still differ from place to place. You don't have to go back very far in history, or you don't have to travel very far in terms of geography, to find people who, as, as a nation, will have decided that they think the death penalty is a good thing. Whereas most of those who live here in London would probably be of the opinion that the abolition of the death penalty was a good thing. Or, if you had travelled with our church group to Palestine last year, this time last year, you would have seen firsthand the complex and tragic outworking of the old adage that one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. Who is on the side of right and who is on the side of wrong? Depends which side of the Israel-Palestine wall you're standing as to how you might answer that question. And within church life, you will find some Christians who condemn, for example, women in ministry or the conducting of same-sex marriages. And then you will find other Christians, such as ourselves, who celebrate both of these as the good gifts of God. And sometimes it seems the call on what is good and what is evil is just a function of where you're standing 
when you make that call. So, are good and evil relative? Or are there any absolutes here? By what criteria do you think we can judge things as good or evil? Well, this isn't a new question, although the issues around which it tends to coalesce will change and have changed from generation to generation. Humans have, it seems, always tried to work out what constitutes good and what constitutes evil. And one of the ways that they've done this is through the telling of stories, exploring in narrative form the complexities of the problem. Sometimes it's easier to get to grips with things in a story than it is in a sort of propositional list of things to do or not do. So the ancient Babylonians told a story about the creation of the world, and their story was that the world was created in violence, and therefore the natural human state was violence, and therefore violence was something good to live by. Their myth was known as the Enuma Elish, and if you are interested this afternoon, you can wander around to the British Museum, and you can see a clay tablet with it written on. If you've never done that, I recommend it. And the ancient Babylonian myth, the Enuma Elish, told how the great god Marduk killed Tiamat, the, the goddess of the oceans, and when he'd killed her, he took her carcass and he split it apart, it says it like gutting a fish, and spread it over the heavens, and this is why the waters above do not come down to below because the goddess of the oceans is now spread above the heavens. And this means that the earth is created in an act of violence. So the Babylonian worldview was that violence is not evil, it's the will of the gods, and it's woven into the fabric of creation. You may remember in the Jewish story of their history, they spend time exiled in Babylon. And the ancient Jews in exile in Babylon told a different story, which said that the world was created in goodness and love, and that violence entered the world as a result of wrongdoing. So from the ancient Jewish perspective, violence was evil, something to be resisted or avoided. And the reading we had earlier from the prophet Habakkuk there is a debate. Habakkuk, Habakkuk. Take your pick. It's potato, potato. So the reading we had earlier from the prophet Habakkuk comes from precisely this time of the Israelite exile in Babylon. And he's distressed that God appears to have abandoned his people, the people of Israel, to the violence of the Babylonians. And, you know, it wasn't going well for Israel at this point. Uh, many people had been killed, the temple had been destroyed, and a whole bunch of them had been taken off to exile in Babylon with really, as far as they could see, no possibility of return. And Habakkuk is concerned that the violent worldview of the Babylonian gods is going to triumph over the worldview of the Israelite god who calls the created world good rather than violent. 
So if you go back to your Bibles afterwards and reread this first chapter of Habakkuk, you'll find it's actually cast as a dialogue between the prophet and God, with the prophet raising his concerns and then God answering back. Now in our reading today, we just heard a small part of the prophet's side of the conversation, in which he gives voice to the great theological problem that has vexed the ages. The question of why it is that a good God seems to allow evil to prosper. Why it is that A good God doesn't intervene to rescue victims from their oppressors. You'll have had people put these questions to you, of course, when you've spoken to non-Christian friends and you've said, I'm a Christian, and they've gone, well, how could a God of goodness allow all the violence in the world? I mean, it's it's the standard question. Um, You're not the first people to have had to address this, thankfully. It's there in the Old Testament. From Habakkuk's perspective, Israel has been praying faithfully for release for an end to their suffering. But God appears to be allowing evil to prosper over good. And Habakkuk uses this image of a fishing net to make his point. His complaint is that God has reduced humans to the level of fish and that they are caught in the Babylonian dragnet of violence with no possibility or opportunity of escape. So in Habakkuk's image, this dragnet is a symbol of punishment. It's a symbol of violence, of hopelessness, and of evil. And this idea of a fishing net as a symbol of God's judgment surely lies behind Jesus' parable from Matthew chapter 13. Jesus would have known chapter 1 of Habakkuk. So we've been looking at Matthew chapter 13, through this year at at communion services, these so-called parables of the kingdom. And what we've discovered, and if you've missed any of these, they're all there on our podcast, and you can go back and listen to them again if you want to. Um, What we've discovered is that over and over again, these parables are rarely quite what they seem. Consistently, the way Jesus tells these little short stories has been done in such a way as to subvert the way the Pharisees of his time were making use of traditional images from the Hebrew tradition to justify their Pharisaic version of nationalistic pride and religious intolerance. So, if you remember back to earlier this year when we looked at the parable of the mustard seed, this was told to undermine the Pharisees' desire that Jerusalem would tower over the nations of the world like a mighty cedar. No, says Jesus, it's more like a mustard seed. The parable of the yeast was told to undermine the Pharisaic desire for Israel to become so ritually pure that all other people were excluded from God's love. No, it's not like the leavened bread of purity. It's like, sorry, the unleavened bread of purity. It's like the leavened bread that you get when the yeast works its way through. The parable of the treasure was told to undermine the Pharisaic desire to make following God about duty rather than joy. And the emphasis there was on the person who enjoy, sells all that they have and goes after the treasure. This isn't a duty, this is a joyful life. We even had a go, if you remember, at writing some contemporary versions of Jesus' parables to see if we could do something similar with uh, our world, undermining perhaps those values in our time that tend towards exclusion and nationalism. 
And here in today's parable of the dragnet, we meet a similarly subversive parable, which goes head to head with the Pharisees' understanding of judgment, undermining their desire to declare themselves and those like them as good and everyone else as evil. A contemporary version of this parable might go something like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a bottom-trawling fishing boat with fine-hulled nets. It scrapes and scoops everything in its path without distinction, and the ecosystems it disrupts are never the same again. It's fairly shocking, I think, to put it in those terms. I mean, we hear on the news that bottom-trawling fishing is indiscriminate and highly destructive to the environment. To compare this to the kingdom of heaven feels counterintuitive. We could just take a note from our first hymn. Deeply wailing, deeply wailing. Never mind. I think the effect of casting the parable as a dragnet in terms of a bottom-trawling fishing boat, probably has a similar effect in our consciousness to that which Jesus achieved by describing the kingdom as a dragnet. The kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown into the sea, caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore and sat down and put, into, put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. Yeah, leave it up. That's great. That's really helpful. I think it helps us understand what Jesus was doing when we realise that he's basing his parable on uh, the passage we had read from the book of Habakkuk, which, as we've seen, describes the people of Israel as fish, victimised by Babylonians, crying out to God for release from the evil net of violence. The Pharisees would have been very familiar with the us-and-them mentality of Habakkuk. You can kind of hear Habakkuk crying in his complaint, we're right, we've been faithful, they're wrong, they're the violent Babylonians, we're the victims, they're the oppressors, it's us who are good, it's them who are evil. And the Pharisees would have wanted to echo that in their time. You know, we're the good ones, not them. This would have been the repeated cry of the nationalistic Pharisees of Jesus' day as they constructed their narrative of victimhood, rehearsing perhaps all the enemies of God's people down the ages from the Egyptians to the Assyrians to the Babylonians to the Greeks to the Romans of their own time, all these other Gentile nations who had sought the destruction of Israel down the centuries. You can kind of hear the Babylonian, sorry, the, the Pharisees' narrative. We're always the ones in the right. It's always them who are the wrong ones. It's always them who have got it in for us. Imagine how shocking it would have been for them when Jesus took the net image from Habakkuk and turned it on his head. The kingdom of heaven, in Jesus' parable, is not a narrative of victimhood, with us as the fish caught in their net of violence once again. It doesn't lead to policies of exclusion. It's not a story of us and them. It's not a story of us being good and those out there being evil. Rather, the way Jesus tells it, it's a story of inclusion, of radical and disruptive intervention in the global ecosystems of violence. 
The kingdom of heaven is not the few faithful fish caught in someone else's net. It is the net itself, trawling the world and gathering everything in its path. As I said, it is a disconcerting image. From a contemporary perspective, I think we sometimes tend towards an idolisation of the created order. Any good marketing executive knows that natural is good because natural sells. Now, I have no wish here to undermine a properly Christian concern for the environment. We are a registered eco-church. You may be aware that we flew an Extinction Rebellion banner for a couple of days last week in solidarity with those who are wanting to preserve our planet. But nature is not always fuzzy and cuddly. And we do it a disservice if we idolise it as such. Nature can be violent and dangerous. Take Tennyson's famous line that nature is red in tooth and claw, which has frequently been used to characterise Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection. It kind of perhaps unconsciously echoes the Babylonian mythological perspective that creation was born in violence. In nature... The fish caught in a bottom-trawling dragnet have no knowledge of good and evil. That distinction is something that's reserved for humans and humans alone to make. The fish don't call the destruction of their habitat as evil. They just know elemental moments of pleasure or pain or contentment or fear, probably the joy of killing or of being the fear of being killed. To call these things evil and good is beyond any created being except ourselves. This surely is the point of the Jewish creation story, which took shape in exile in Babylon. Only the symbolic descendants of those who have eaten the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil are those who can make such distinctions of good and evil. And as humans, we have become so very efficient at imposing our categories of good and evil onto the world. We do it all the time and always according to criteria of our own devising. I mean, I've got my little list, and I'm sure you've got yours. For the Pharisees of Jesus' day, the world was very binary. You were either good or you were evil, and for them, good was defined in terms of purity and being pretty much exactly like them. And evil was not being exactly like them or not observing the purity laws. Now, I don't know if you've spent much time in reading the book of Leviticus over the years, but it is an astonishing treatise on purity legislation, labelling the created order good and evil in terms of pure and unpure or clean and unclean. Here are a few examples for you that I looked up. Clean. Animals with divided hooves that chew the cud. You can eat those. Unclean, the camel, the rock badger, the hare and the pig. Who knew? Clean birds. Except unclean, buzzards, kites, ravens, ostriches, nighthawks, seagulls, hawks, owls, storks, herons of any kind, plus bats. Unclean, all the insects that walk on the ground, except those that have jointed legs for leaping, such as the locust, the cricket and the grasshopper. You can eat those if you want to. Unclean, the weasel, the mouse and the gecko, the land crocodile and the chameleon. Please don't eat those. And so it goes on and on and on with regulations as to what to do if you accidentally eat something you shouldn't or touch something you shouldn't or touch something that's touched something that it shouldn't have. And then we come to the fish. 
Leviticus 11, verses 9 to 12. These you may eat of all that are in the waters, everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the streams, such you may eat. But anything in the seas and streams that does not have fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the water and amongst all the other living creatures that are in the waters, they are detestable to you, and detestable they shall remain. Of their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall regard as detestable. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. So, picture the scene. You're a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. You might even work for James and John, Fishing Partners Incorporated, 23 AD. Your boat has been dragnet fishing and has come back with a good catch. Maybe some helpful man on the shore told you to cast the nets on the other side and see what you got. And now it's time to sort. Into one pile goes all the fish with fins and scales, and that pile goes off to market, and that's where your profit lies. Into the other pile goes all the rest. Those things declared detestable according to the purity laws of Leviticus, despite the fact that they may well be perfectly edible and possibly even quite delicious. That second pile gets burned. Picture another scene. You're a fisherman working a trawler in the North Sea in the 21st century, and you come back with a bottom-trawling dragnet full of fish, and now it's time to sort. The criteria for what goes to market is no longer that of the book of Leviticus. It's now the cold, hard economic decisions of what can be sold and what can't. It's a decision based on the costs of processing and marketability. Of course, that which is discarded as unwanted is not necessarily of no value. I mean, the corals, the urchins, the turtles, and so on. They have great value in terms of beauty and biodiversity, but they have no economic value, and so they go in the pile to be incinerated. In both ancient and modern contexts, catch that are good by one criteria, good to eat but with the wrong scales, or good for the environment but not profitable to process, are called bad and discarded and burned. As I said, humans are so very good at destructively and decisively naming creation as good or bad according to our own arbitrary criteria. If you were here last week, we heard Karen challenging us that the eternal sin is calling that which is good bad. And she observed that we do this all the time. Well, here in Jesus' parable of the dragnet, I suggest we hear him challenging the criteria of judgment that humans use. Jesus takes the narrative of the Pharisees that the people of God are the eternal victims, forever prey to violent acts of unclean, impure and Gentile evil nations. And he subverts this with an image of judgment where all creatures clean and unclean, are gathered into the great net of the kingdom of heaven. From this perspective, the disruptive judgment of the dragnet is a good thing, because the social, ethical, and political ecosystems of our world are fallen, corrupt, and corrupting, and it is right that they should be challenged. But when it comes to sorting the catch, the criteria are not those devised by human minds. It's not, in the end, in Jesus' parable, the fishermen who decide 
The Pharisees don't get to write the sorting script. It's not done according to purity regulations. It's not done according to the rules of a free market economy or any other basis on which humans consistently try to divide people one from another, labelling some good and some evil. Rather, it is the angels who sorts the catch, according to righteousness and unrighteousness. Jesus takes the power away from the Pharisees and those like them, who delight in saying who's in and who's out, and instead moves the basis of judgment from ritual to ethics. The point is that it is evil itself which is excluded here from God's kingdom, not those whom others have called evil. The basis of the sorting is not ritual cleanness or indeed any other external feature or measure. Rather, the basis on which judgment is passed is ethical. As Jesus says earlier in Matthew's Gospel in the sayings on judgment in chapter 7, verse 20, you will know them by their fruits. It seems that a Jesus ethic of judgment is very different from that which the world normally operates. And those who have found themselves on the receiving end of the world's judgment, being told that for one reason or another they don't measure up or that they are evil, will find liberation and good news and acceptance in the judgment of Jesus. However, the universal picture of the kingdom of heaven here, dragging everything in, must never be taken as an excuse for avoiding judgment. We need judgment. I need it. You need it. Without judgment, there's no need for salvation. The person who cannot critically assess their own behaviour is a person with deep psychological damage who will inevitably hurt themselves and others. And here at Bloomsbury, in our little corner of the kingdom, we have our own decisions to make about good and evil. What it is that we're going to take our stand on. In our prayer, as we seek God's will for our lives and our community, we are going to need to be open to the whisper of the Spirit, who tells us time and again of the love of God and subverts our assumptions and keeps us open to God's mercy. We will need to avoid writing our own scripts of judgment, which say we're in and they're out. We will need one another to keep each other accountable and to share the task of discernment of good and evil in our time and in our place. We will need the wisdom of the angels if we are to rightly discriminate good from evil in this complex world of ours. We will need the wisdom of the angels if we are rightly to call the world to account for the evil we do to one another and to creation. And we will need the wisdom of the angels if we are to rightly proclaim the love and mercy of God to all that has been made. So let us bring our prayers for the world before God. Great God of all the earth, 
We recognise with sorrow and repentance in our hearts that all too easily we, your created people, rush to the judgment of others. We divide humanity, one from another, condemning some and vindicating others, and always placing ourselves on the side of the righteous. We isolate those who do not look, live or love like we do. And we put them apart, telling ourselves that we are right, because they are wrong. But we hear from your word that in this we bring judgment on ourselves, every bit as much as we would heap judgment on those we would condemn. Forgive us, dear Lord. May we instead learn to see others as you see them, rather than as we have learned to see them. May we be given the insight of your spirit to see through difference, to discover the common humanity that underlies all our interactions, all our relationships. And so we pray today for a world that seems intent on tearing itself apart. We look around us at your world and we see so much strife, division, war, suffering and pain. We see people rushing to judgment of the other and calling down the fires of hell on those who are not like them. From the breakup of countries and unions, to the hatred of one religious group for another, to the scapegoating of the weak and the vulnerable at every level of society, we see humans intent on dividing one from another in the interests of naming some as right and some as wrong. So today we pray for the victims of terrorism. We hold before you all those who will live the rest of their lives with pain and horror. We pray for those who will have been turned from peace to violence by horror visited upon them. We pray also for those who work at great cost to themselves to build bridges between divided peoples. We pray also for those who build bridges between Islam and Christianity. We recognise that so much of the violence that we face in our time comes from people who claim to be acting in obedience to divine command. And we ask that people of violent faith will hear the still small voice of calm in the midst of their rush to righteous condemnation of the other. We pray for the persecuted church and for any who face a martyr's death. May peace and justice prevail as your kingdom comes on earth as in heaven. We pray for victims of racism in our city of London, for those who are marginalised, bullied and attacked because of their ethnicity. And we pray for asylum seekers, refugees and all those who are denied the possibility of fullness of life just because of who they are. May we as your people in this city be catalysts of inclusion as we live out our conviction that all people are created in your image. Help us to set aside whatever privilege we have inherited 
and to be willing to meet the other as equal, whoever they may be. We pray for all those who find themselves victimised or excluded because of their minority sexuality. We pray especially for those who have been isolated from communities of faith and whose experience of your body has been divisive rather than inclusive. We thank you for those who are willing to speak out and for those who are willing to reach out and embrace difference. We pray for the homeless and the vulnerable, for those whose economic and personal circumstances give rise to precarious living. And we name before you the work of our partners and activities who seek to bring support and progression to those who feel trapped by life. We think particularly of C4WS and the Winter Night Shelter, and of the Simon community and our evening centre, and of the volunteers from this community who cook and serve and offer love and friendship. And so we pray for our church in all its glorious diversity. We ask that this place will be a beacon of light, love and inclusion, where we discover together that within the love of Christ, all other barriers that would divide us are rendered irrelevant. We pray that all will be welcome here, regardless of ethnicity, sexuality, gender, social standing. And that we will have the courage to live the truth of your glorious gospel of unity in the midst of our divided city. Amen. <laughs>